exhibitions should also probably allow for a certain experience that goes beyond the educating moment. And I think to find the balance in each instance, that's the big task between educating and providing an experience. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our Connect Sessions one-to-one. I'm Amelia, and this week I'm speaking with Martino Stierli, Chief Curator of Architecture and Design at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. MoMA's Architecture and Design Department was the first of its kind. Established in 1932, the collection has since grown immensely, including 28,000 works in all types of media. When Stierli joined the museum in 2015, MoMA had already started undergoing major changes. Deluscafidio and Renfro's redesign was already underway, including an expansion into the space formerly occupied by the American Folk Art Museum. Many questioned how MoMA's expansion could affect the architecture and design department. Stierley joined me on the podcast to discuss his plans to bring more diversity to the collection and MoMA's strategy overall for the near future. So I'd actually just like to start with an issue that arose earlier this year. In April, the Architects newspaper published a piece stating that the architecture and design galleries at MoMA would be closing due to the Delors-Gafidio and Renfro renovation and expansion. And in that piece, it kind of portrayed the closure as the first intractable step towards a permanent closure of these galleries. That instead of having specific galleries devoted to exhibiting architecture and design, the works in the collection and the exhibitions that were temporary in those media would then be subsumed into other galleries and kind of mixed with other pieces. You wrote a response to the paper clarifying that, in fact, the medium-specific galleries will still exist in the new expansion and that the closure of these galleries was simply temporary as part of the expansion. And that MoMA hadn't specified exactly how they would be used in the new expansion, but that we shouldn't jump to conclusions. So for our listeners, for their sake, can you clarify exactly what the strategy is for architecture and design exhibitions alongside MoMA's expansion into the former Folk Art Museum site? Well, thank you very much for, you know, giving me the opportunity to clarify that point. That was indeed a very unfortunate piece of misinformation that was spread about and, you know, aroused quite a bit of controversy throughout the world, Mm -hmm. which was very difficult to address. Uh, once the misinformation is out. Anyway, we are currently in the process of looking into how we want to present all of our collections going forward after the reopening uh, of the new, you know, expansion and the renovated galleries in 2019. And I cannot go into specific details, you know, where things will be located, because that simply is an ongoing conversation with uh, mainly among all the chief curators, but then also um, with all the curators in the museum who are involved in making these decisions. I can say that we are going to continue to have designated permanent galleries for architecture and design. I can also say that, you know, our department, as you probably know, owns the complete archives of Mies van der Rohe and uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. So, you know, two obviously of the masters of modern architecture. And I can I can say that both of these archives will have um, a significantly higher and permanent visual presence in the museum after the expansion. So I can say 
that without, you know, going into specifics where the galleries for architecture and design will be located, that there will be permanent dedicated galleries um, for architecture and design, and that in particular, our collections or our archives of Frank Lloyd Wright and Mies van der Rohe will have significantly raised you know, visual presence in the, in the museum than ever before. That said, we are also going to, going forward, experiment with more integrated galleries. That is a, an interest shared by all of the chief curators. We want to try to see how we can include in one gallery space objects from, you know, from our various collections. One example would be, you know, for example, a space on Vienna circa 1900, which would, of course, include design objects as well as painting. We could also conceive of a, of a space, you know, um, for around this style, which would, of course, include architectural drawings from our collections, but also furniture next to drawings and paintings and so on and so forth. So in, in, in a matter of period rooms. But there is, of course, also other other things conceivable, for example, we could imagine a space on the Bauhaus, which would uh, include, you know, a variety of media and so on and so forth. That said, I want to stress again but that that is not the only way we are going to show um, our collections, but that we conceive of this as a both-and strategy, meaning we will both have permanent medium-specific galleries for architecture and design, as well as for other uh, mediums represented in our collections. And we will have, at the same time, more integrated galleries that try to bridge the gap. This is all to ensure that, on the one hand, we can reconsider and rethink how we want to tell the history of modern art and architecture in a new and different and fresh way than before. And at the same time that we are still going to be able to tell the very specific histories of each discipline within a larger context. Why do you think it is that when this misinformation came out, people were so outraged, particularly within the architecture and design community, there was such a, a backlash towards the potential closure permanently of these galleries. People felt very like inflicted upon. But what do you think exactly why that was? Why did they feel so potentially hurt by that scenario? Well, I think the article really insinuated that we were going to close down the architecture and design galleries for good and sort of implying that architecture and design would not have a space anymore in the Museum of Modern Art going forward. And, you know, that would indeed be an alarming situation because uh, then sort of our work here in the Department of Architecture and Design, which is, by the way, the oldest standing department of its kind in an art museum in the world, would become superfluous. And um, so in a way, of course, I was, uh, you know, in a way also appreciative of the of the um, alarm that it disturbed because it showed that there is a, a large, you know, community of architects and designers who care about our work, which um, was also something, you know, I actually appreciated. And it was good to, to feel that support. At the same time, it was very unfortunate that, you know, all of this outrage was really based on, on, on a really a piece of misinformation that has absolutely no grounding in reality and in, you know, in, in the way the discussion has been going among the chief curators. 
Mm -hmm. And indeed, people do look to MoMA to set that standard of sorts in exhibition design and an exhibition strategy, and particularly because of its history with exhibiting architecture and design. But just from your own standpoint and from your own research before coming to MoMA and also at your position at MoMA, of course, architecture presents a specific problem with being exhibited in that it can never really be come in at full scale. When it does, it's usually an object that is not perhaps to the general public an easy sell as actual architecture or as building architecture as they might understand it. So in your mind and professionally, how do you conceptualize the uh, the main opportunities of exhibiting architecture when you can't do it at full scale? That is a very difficult question that I think is uh, almost impossible to answer on such a general level. I completely agree that Exhibiting architecture is more difficult than exhibiting any other medium represented in our department, simply because we usually, as you uh, properly mentioned yourself, have to work with representations of the actual object, whereas, of course, a painting or a sculpture or a drawing is always the object itself. And, uh, you know, against that background, it really depends on what kind of architecture you want to show. So I think there is, for example, um, we had a couple of years ago an, an exhibition on Henri Labrouste, where, you know, the sort of aesthetic dimension of these Beaux-Arts drawings that Henri Labrouste uh, prepared is so stunning that you can really almost present these drawings as their own proper works of art, as drawings, basically. Mm -hmm. However, if you want to make a point about, say, new spatial possibilities given by, you know, whatever, new technological advancements, I think it would be much more, you know, important to be able to sort of actually give an actual experience of what such a space could feel or look like. So I really think... Exhibiting architecture, there's not a, you know, there's not a general recipe. You really have to think about what aspects of the discipline of architecture and of its representation you are interested in foregrounding. And I think that again depends on the theories and the ideas that are behind a specific object or a specific movement or a specific figure that you want to highlight. So I think an architectural exhibition should always try to educate to some degree, which sounds a little boring, but it should, mm -hmm. you know, address a professional audience and let them, you know, give them an indication of how other architects before them or, you know, contemporary to them have thought about specific architectural problems that, you know, have a current significant as well. At the same time, you know, exhibitions should also probably um, allow for a certain experience that goes beyond the educating moment. And I think to find the balance in each instance, that's the big task between educating and providing an experience. Well, you mentioned as well that oftentimes in these exhibitions, the the renderings or the sketches or the products of the architectural process become works in and of themselves, that they are pieces of art that through their aesthetics and through their role in the process become their own. Yes, they are still representations of the overall building project, but they themselves on their own are art objects as well. And I think there's an interesting dovetail here into current architectural discourse online where 
at least in mass media and to the public, so much of architectural discourse is entirely about images because A, it can't actually be a structure online, but also just that the images of architecture are traded through things like social media and journalistic media in a much more widespread way. And that is often what the public gets to see is like these images of usually rendering, so to say, of projects along their production cycle. And prior coming to MoMA, you taught the history of modern architecture at the University of Zurich with a focus on architecture and media. And because of the way that the online discourse around architecture is happening these days, how do you feel that relatively recent phenomenon plays into exhibition strategies? Hmm. Well, I think the relevance of images for architectural exhibitions is not such a new phenomenon. If you look, for example, at the first big Mies van der Rohe retrospective that was organized by Philip Johnson in the museum in the post-war period, very, very much relied on, you know, stunning big images of visionary architecture from the 1920s that, you know, Mies had uh, conceived, but that were never built. So the relevance of stunning images for, you know, the medium of architectural exhibition is not all that new. And I think it became more acute, you know, in what we have, you know, what we now call postmodernism, where this uh, visual discourse, discourse has become more and more prominent. But you are absolutely right in saying that this kind of exhibition has a tendency to sort of underscore an aesthetic dimension and leave out to some degree the sort of the way architecture relates to society, to the city, to all kinds of aspects that are very, very, you know, relevant for, for, for architectural discourse. So again, I think the big challenge would be to rely on images, but at the same time to be able to show that, you know, the dangers and limitations of a purely visual discourse in architecture and to perhaps explain how the mechanisms work behind this, uh, you know, iconic turn, as it has been called. But at the same time, to also use, you know, images to show the relevance and the unbelievable potential of architectural thinking and of visionary architectural projects to a larger audience. So, you know, at the same time, I, th I would say, yes, it's true. The iconic turn or this uh, fascination or obsession with images has its dangers, but it also has a huge potential. And, um, you know, we work somewhere in, in between those two poles and have to find a way to make this um, relevant. Mm -hmm. In MoMA's expansion plans, there's been a lot of talk or perhaps even speculation about spaces for performance in the new expansion space or areas that could accommodate performance and more traditional media being exhibited. What are the other exhibitionary tools besides specifically just images that architecture can take advantage of to kind of buffer what this phenomenon that you're talking about? Well, basically anything can go into an architectural exhibition. Obviously, photographs, drawings, but of course also film. We're actually increasingly interested in including, uh, you know, the, the, the moving image into, into our exhibitions, but also spatial installations, obviously, which don't necessarily have to be buildings, but we can also conceive of the, you know, the exhibition architecture, the sort of the thing that actually holds the objects that we want mm -hmm. to show as something that is meaningful 
meaningful. And um, I am very interested in enforcing that perhaps more so than it has been done in the past within, of course, the limitations that you know, we we always have with, you know, working in, in given galleries. But I do think that is an aspect of architectural exhibitions that has potentially been underexplored. Also, technologically speaking, in a lot of museums, galleries or the museum entirely are taking on new strategies of incorporating different technologies, whether it's just an iPad somewhere in the gallery or some kind of interactive media that is there to both educate the public, but also guide them through it in a more perhaps useful or enjoyable way. What plans does MoMA have or any that you can speak about to integrate that kind of technology into the architecture and design exhibitions? Or are there any kind of specific plans along that end? Well, you're raising a very, you know, important point. And again, I can't go into the details because, you know, we are very much in the process of, of, forming our strategy. And also, you know, we don't necessarily want to blow everything out because, um, of course, the, the reopening should be, you know, a big surprise to everyone. But of course, you're absolutely right that, you know, new social media and interactive uh, media present a huge um, opportunity for us as curators. If we think, for example, of our of the representation of our collection, where we can always, uh, even in the new, in the new uh, expanded building, where we will always only be able to show a, a tiny fraction of all our holdings, you know, we have huge opportunities to engage the visitor with it and and provide additional information, you know, through the interface, through the iPhone, or where additional information can be provided on the objects on display, but also on all the other things that are, you know, back in the in the storage and are not on display at the moment. And you know, we can also think of linking things and pointing out connections that you can not show perhaps in, in, in a specific given installation, but that will be possible. So I think that there's an enormous potential that, that there that we certainly want to make use of. And also, of course, uh, we are thinking of uh, sort of using, which is not the wrong word, but inviting our visitors to feed into actually the contents of our exhibitions. Just to mention one example, in the Latin American in Construction exhibition uh, last year, we had an Instagram wall where users from all over the world could uh, send in photographs of modern modernist architecture from Latin America and that, you know, then there was an editing process and the best of these photos were then, you know, became integrated onto a large uh, display wall within the exhibition. So, you know, there's, I think there's many things that we can think about and explore further and we are absolutely committed to doing so. I'm thinking what you're saying makes me think of the applications for specifically AR technology for conveying more information about any given thing on display to the public, and also VR for representing architecture. That's um, AR and VR, again, um, very important points. That is actually a very interesting uh, discussion cross-departmentally, as you might imagine. You know, our colleagues from media and performance art and also from film are very, very, you know, keen on uh, expanding our, you know, traditional fields of collecting and exhibiting into these emerging fields. So, that is another, you know, really fabulous opportunity for us to collaborate on interesting projects. Architects looking into how architectural and urban space can be represented, but then also, on the other hand, you know, artists who are uh, making a step towards experimenting with these new 
rapidly emerging technologies. So um, all of this is, you know, very much an ongoing discourse and uh, we, we don't have a policy on that, but it's very clear and, you know, certain that, that this will become more and more important um, as, we, as we move forward. Um, I'd also like to speak a little bit about the kind of legacy that you're coming into at MoMA, because to preface all of this is you've started approximately a year ago. You began at MoMA in 2015, taking over from Barry Bergdahl. Could you describe a little bit about what the shoes you were filling were like, <laughs> what kind of things Barry left for you to take up and what the opportunities he set out for you to do, what they were? Right. I would say I came in, you know, I I was, of course, familiar with Barry's work. He had stepped down a couple of years before I actually joined MoMA. So there was a bit of an interregnum, so to speak. I felt very much that I wanted to, that I saw myself more in the continuity of his work than rather than as, a, than as a radical break. We both, of course, you know, came from an academic background, which, um, you know, I think sort of maybe testifies to a certain degree to the museum's commitment to rigorous scholarly research in, in the Department of Architecture and Design in particular. So, you know, I felt in a way comfortable stepping into these big shoes. At the same time, of course, it was a, a, an enormous step for me coming from the university to the museum, from Europe, uh, from Switzerland in particular to the United States and so on and so forth. So it was a, a challenging move, but um, one, of course, that created a lot of, you know, a, a fabulous um, a platform for me to broadcast my my ideas and my understanding of what architectural exhibitions and design exhibitions should be like. When I analyzed uh, what the legacy that Barry Bergdahl had, had left behind, two things struck me in particular that I wanted to pursue further. One was a certain, how can I say that, what I would call a critical revision of the canon and of canonical history as it has been written to no small degree by, you know, MoMA itself. And I was thinking in particular of the survey exhibition of post-war Latin American architecture that I already briefly mentioned, which was really, I think, a, a very important step into the right direction that, you know, this institution and actually textbook history has basically told the history of modern architecture basically from a very Eurocentric Western perspective, which is very much reflected also in MoMA's collections. We have excellent holdings of North American and Western European architecture, and we are not so strong in all these other geographies that have in fact produced an extremely important body of modern architecture throughout the 20th century. These areas in particular particular Latin America, Eastern Europe, Asia as well, even to some degree um, Africa, have been treated as, you know, peripheries, as something that came that was secondary or you know of less importance or or significance for uh, the development or for the history of modern architecture and i think actually the opposite is true many of these places you know in the in the process of nation building of decolonization and so on and so forth of industrialization of modernization in the 20th century very heavily relied on modern architecture and in often in very interesting ways tried to emulate sort of the universal of modern architecture with very specific local regional conditions. And I think there's an enormous amount of research and of fascinating 
creating material for us to still be discovered and not only to be discovered but also to be displayed in the in the museum so one of the things i am working on which will actually be my first big research show is an exhibition on the architecture of socialist yugoslavia and the period from roughly 
okay, we really used that large and important research exhibition really to fundamentally change our collections holdings. We had only a handful of objects from Latin America up to then, and now we have over 600. Um, all of this is just saying that, you know, once we do address an issue, we have good chances of, of, of changing that image for the better. <laughs> but I do think that is a, a problem that has just not been recognized, you know, in the West for a very, very long time, where really, if you look at, you know, textbooks on the history of modern architecture, almost everything that was written up to basically 2000 really only looked at North American and Western European, you know, developments with a few exceptions, of course, you know, uh, Russian avant-garde and so on. Yes, that that's clear. But in the post-war period, for example, that story just wasn't told. And only in the past few years do we see uh, you know, that scholarship has actually turned systematically to trying to represent better what the history of modern architecture really was and is, you know, on a global scale. And I think the very same issues that scholarship are facing are now, you know, are also resurfacing or also surfacing in the museums. And that's what we are working on. So, of course, that presents a very long term project that they'll be accumulating over time. But are there any other big plans that you have for your time at MoMA? Well, I think this revisitation of the canon will really be a focus. And as you might imagine, there's a few quite extraordinary exhibitions that we can conceive of. I mentioned one that is, that is already very much in the planning. For other things, there are, you know, strong ideas that we're working on that I don't want to go into detail with. But, um, you know, one thing that we haven't touched so much yet is maybe what I want to do with the collection. I mean, we did that to some degree to, you know, to broaden the geographical diversity. But I think for the collection, diversity in general is an issue. We have um, a very strong underrepresentation of women architects, for example, that we want to, you know, at least alleviate to some degree. The question of race, the representation of African-American architects and designers and, you know, black architects and designers in general is an, is an issue that we want to address. So there's a lot of work to be done. Well, it's been really interesting seeing how MoMA is expanding and what is planned for the future. So I appreciate you so much coming on the podcast and, and talking a little bit about it. Thank you so much, Martino. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Archonex Sessions one-to-one with Martino Stierli. Danilo Voinov edits our podcast and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of one-to-one. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the podcast, consider leaving us a review. We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, and you can email us at connect at Thanks again for listening to One to One.